Uh, we started this resilience series in the summer, and uh, the reason we did that is because we said, hey, 2020 kind of punched a lot of us in the nose, right? I mean, we, we saw this pandemic with schools closing and shutdowns and, and all the stuff that goes with it, and, and we said, hey, you know what? We want to be resilient, and resilient means to bounce back. It, it means to take, come back to form. We say kids are resilient when they, when they move and see things change, and, and we also know that resilient means persevering through hard times and, and, and difficult seasons, and that's what we want to be. We want to be the church that is resilient. And from that, we, we just said, listen, we don't want to just work off a definition here. We believe this is a biblical concept, and, and that comes from 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul is challenging the church as he, he looks at him and he says, hey, you're pressed, but you're not crushed. I mean, when, when he looks at him and says, it's going to come at you from every angle, you're not crushed. You, you might be persecuted, but, but you're not abandoned. You might be perplexed or confused, but you're not in despair. You might be struck down, but we are resilient. We are not destroyed. And, and so we just said, hey, they're all throughout Scripture. These people are all throughout Scripture. We looked at Esther. Esther was pressed, wasn't she? I mean, she was pressed by Haman as he wanted to eradicate the Jews. She was pressed by Mordecai to go stand before the king. She was pressed by the fact that she was a woman who was going to stand in front of this, this king uninvited. She was pressed. She did it. And then we looked at Stephen, who was struck down. The first martyr recorded in Scripture struck down, but he knew his final words was that he was not destroyed. Into your hands, Lord, I'm giving you my spirit. He knew he wasn't destroyed. And then you have guys like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was confused. He was perplexed. He's like, who are you, Jesus? And, and, and listen, he went in the middle of the night to ask his questions, but apparently he got some clarity because when it was all said and done, there were two people who pulled Jesus off that cross, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Where were the guys who'd been following Jesus for the last three years? Apparently Nicodemus was resilient. Or, or Nathan the guy that had to go to King David and say, yeah, man, you, you committed adultery and murder. That would take resilience, wouldn't it? That's pressure. And, and then Ananias last week, I mean, can you imagine having to, I mean, the confusion that he must have as God tells him, yeah, this guy hates Christians, and matter of fact, he's, he's killing them, and I need you to go pray for him. I mean, that would be confusing, right? Today, we're gonna look at Hannah. And as I say all of that, Hannah carries all of that weight. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story. I'm, I'm, just to be honest with you, it's weighty even to read it. I mean, all of this she's going to experience. All of this she is going to, to carry. And so today, if there's ever anyone that we could look at and say, man, resilience, it, it's Hannah. Let, let's, let's read it together. First Samuel Chapter 1, verse 1, just listen to these words as we go through the story. It says, There was a man from Ramathim, Zorophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. So we got this guy named Elkanah. That's who all of those names are pointing to him. Verse 2, he had two wives, the first named Hannah. There's our, our character today. And the second, Penina. Now, Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. Anytime we get to these portions of Scripture, you can you just feel the weight as you read it, right? 
Man, I read that, and, and not only that, but you look at it, and you, you I mean, there's all kinds of questions. I mean, you, most of us are probably like, what's up with the two-wife thing? What, what's going on with that? And that's a, that's a sermon for another time. But if you'll notice in the text, it says his first wife was Hannah. She's named first, and then Penina. And then it tells you that Hannah was childless. And so she's carrying the weight and the inability to have a child which uh, I'm a man, I can't speak to that weight. I don't understand that weight. I just, I can feel it a little bit here. And as I'm, I'm feeling it, just to know that as a woman 3,000 years ago, it's not just a desire, that's almost value. And so if you're not gonna provide me a child, then I need another marriage so that they can. Now can you feel the weight a little bit more? Like this is just just hard, and I'm sure she's confused. And what's going on here? Verse three says, "This man would would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, were the Lord's priests." Apparently, Elkin is a godly man. He's going to do the pilgrimage just like he's supposed to. He's going to head off there, and he's going to make sacrifices, and he's going to do his part. And so this isn't like she's married to some deadbeat guy. I mean, he clearly is wanting to honor God. Verse 4, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. So the way this would work is you would go and you'd take your sacrifice, a bull, a, a, a lamb, a goat, or whatever, and then there would be portions of that where you could eat that as a family. And as he would divvy up the portion, he would divvy it up according to his wives and the family that they would feed. And so you can imagine this is insult to injury here, right? I mean, he goes up and here's Penina who needs more than Hannah's going to need. Then it says at verse 5, but he gave a double portion to Hannah for he loved her, even though, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Elkanah, he's, he's trying to be a good dude. He's trying to be a good man. He's, he's looking at her and he said, I love you. I, I, this isn't just based on if, if I can have a child or not. I love you here. I want you to have this. And then we have it again. It's that phrase. It just, even when you read it, does anybody else just not even want to read it? Unable to conceive, they just, just feel it. As, I, as I'm looking at this, I, I don't have a whole lot of time to talk about it, but I just I do want to address this. I, I think the confusion sometimes for, for a lot of people is where is God at work and how is he at working and why is this happening to me? And we have those questions. I think Hannah probably was having those same questions as she is very perplexed, very confused. And then... For many of us, we read a story like this and we see this narrative and we say, God must be the reason why this isn't happening. God must be the reason why this thing has happened in my life. And I just, I want us to be really careful when we tread into those waters, right? I mean, God is in control. Nothing, nothing is outside of his control. Nothing is outside of his care and love. But when the Bible gives us these kind of stories and he names people like Sarah and Rachel 
and Elizabeth and Hannah. He's drawing not his attention to the woman. He's actually drawing his attention to the child that's going to be given to them. Because when, when Sarah gets pregnant at you know, 99 years old, it's a miracle, and it's to draw everybody's attention to this is the promised child that God said he was going to give. And when Rachel conceives, it's to say this is a special one. When Elizabeth has that child miraculously, it's say this is John the Baptist. Something's going to change here. And spoiler alert, Hannah's going to have a child. And it is going to change the course of Israel's history. It's very important. And I think we read that and sometimes we immediately put ourselves in the narrative. But I'm not so sure that's, that's the right thing to do. But we feel the weight of it. We feel the fact that, that she's clearly confused. It goes on and, and says in verse 6, her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. That's Penina. Can you imagine that? That Penina would look at her and provoke her. We would call that persecution, right? So now is not only is she confused, but to add insult to injury, now I'm gonna provoke you. I wanna, I wanna insult you. I wanna pour salt in your wound. Like this is, now it's already heavy. Now it's even heavier, and then it says this in verse 7, whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year, and Hannah wept and wouldn't eat. I mean, every year we got to go through this whole thing, and I got to listen to Panina do her thing. I'm sure in a very passive-aggressive way. Can you imagine it? She's perplexed. She's persecuted. And then Elkanah, I mean, he just, he doesn't know what to say. Look at what he does in, in verse 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah will ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Clearly this anxiety, this, this, this feeling and all the emotion is not just something she's feeling. It's now physical. She doesn't want to eat. We've been there before, right? You've had something weigh on you so heavy that you lost your appetite. She's not one to eat, and Elkin is like, why, aren't you, why are you crying? Why, why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? That's not the right question to ask here, right? That's not what you say. And then I think he's, I think he's good-natured. I think he means well when he says this. Am I not better to you than ten sons? That's not what she's looking for. <laughs> That's not what she's looking for, fellas. I just, I mean, just this is for free, but there are some times we just be quiet. Just in the middle of it, just, I just don't know if, I mean, like, why would we? This is press, isn't it? This is press. Hey, eat. Why are you crying? Snap out of this. So she's confused. She's persecuted. She's pressed. Verse 9, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle, deeply hurt. Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. There's a hint of resilience. She's not going to let that pressure 
crusher. She's not going to let that, those questions, the confusion, her, her, her idea of like, I don't know all the answers. She's not going to let her lead that into despair. She's not going to do that. She goes and prays. And then it says this in verse 11, making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. I'm going to come back to that because I think it's the thrust of the passage. Clearly she's praying. But look what happens next. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. You get the picture, right? Just praying. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. I mean, you talk about like no good deed goes unpunished. And this is supposed to be the religious heavyweight. This is the priest. Now she's struck down. Put away your wine. Why are you drunk? I'm just, I'm just trying to pray. That's what she says in verse 15. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any beer or wine. I, I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Whew. You can't tell me this ain't heavy. Eli responds, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested of him. And when I read that and I see all of that stuff, she, most of us could probably say if, if verse 19 read and, and Hannah was crushed by the weight of it, Hannah was found in despair, Hannah was destroyed by all of this, most of us would probably say, I can see it. I can see it. It's hard. But she's going to be resilient. And the way she's going to be resilient is she's going to be resilient in prayer. And, and I, almost, like I, I almost even hate saying it because you come to church and you're like, yep, that's what the preacher's supposed to say. Pray. Man, I, I really want you to see the way she prays here. I just want to spend some time in verse 11. That's it. I just want to look at verse 11 and to see the way she prays. So let's go there. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts. First thing she does is she addresses God. And when she does, I want to be very clear here. This is not the way we open our prayer. Some of us open our prayer with um, Heavenly Father. Some of us open our prayer with Dear Jesus. Some of us open our prayer with Lord. Some of us open our prayer with uh, God. Ah, this is bigger than that. This isn't just rote ritual. And the reason I say that is because this title for God, Lord of hosts, shows up for the first time in 1 Samuel 1. First in verse 3 and now in verse 11. This is incredibly important. Most of the time we read a story like this and all we're focused on is on Hannah and the problems she has. Now I need you to understand something. She is in a broader context of the nation of Israel. So if you'll grant me just a minute, I want to show you just how profound Lord of Hosts really is. You see, the nation of Israel is not exactly known at this point in its life for being really devote, 
devout followers of God. Matter of fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it says this, The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare, and prophetic visions were not widespread. It was quiet. And the reason it was quiet is because the people were not trusting God. They were in rebellion. Matter of fact, all those crazy names I read to you in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that are hard to pronounce and for many of us don't mean anything, I need to at least draw your attention to two of them. Hophni and Phineas. If you were an ancient Near Eastern Jew and somebody said Hophni and Phineas, this is what they would have thought of. They would have thought of chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And it's verse after verse of their failure to acknowledge God. This is the religious elite of Hannah's time. This is the religious elite. Two guys that have no acknowledgement or regard for God whatsoever. It's a time where there's no prophetic visions. It is quiet. It's a time where the high priest thinks you're drunk when you're praying without words, without being able to audibly hear it. And clearly this is a low point, isn't it? Those of you that know what comes chronologically before 1 Samuel is actually the book of Judges. And Judges is this roller coaster ride where the people rebel, they cry, they, they get they get a, you know, attacked by some enemy. They cry out to God and say, we're sorry. God gives them a judge. They go, they get victory, and then they rebel again. And that rebellion's not just some kind of willy-nilly rebellion. I'll just give you a few of them. Um, when you think of judges, most of the time you might think people did what was right in their own eyes or they did as they saw fit. Listen to these words. They forsook God and served Baal and the Asherahs. Or Judges 3, 7. So the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. I could, I could probably give you 15 of these throughout the book of Judges. Give you one more. And again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the Asherahs, the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. I mean, this isn't just Baal anymore. This is Marduk. This is Chemosh. This is, and I can't even get into all these guys. And thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. I'm going to take it one more step further. Baal would have been most of the time called the God of the earth. And if you'll remember, this all comes to a head in Kings where Elijah is going to call down this fire from heaven because it doesn't rain for three years. And the reason for that is because Baal was the God of rain and the crops and growth. And Baal is always normally in scripture tied to Asherah, who is the God of fertility. God of fertility. And so here we have these, this melding of Jews and the Canaanites' religions. And I want to read it to you one more time. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts. Not Baal, not Asherah, not all the other mess that people are praying to. I am. 
am coming to the Lord of hosts. That is, that is more than just dear Heavenly Father. She knows where to turn. Resilient prayer knows where to turn. Now, I give you a, a crazy quote. I saw this this week. A guy named Dale Ralph Davis says this. He says, Hannah could only turn to the Yahweh of hosts, the God whose universal rule encompasses every force or army, heavenly, cosmic, and earthly. You see it or don't see it, it doesn't matter. God is over it. He is over it. And that's who she's calling out to. And then listen to these words. This God, Hannah's God, is clearly no provincial ethnic mascot, no deity emeritus of an Israelite ghetto. Deity emeritus. Can you imagine them saying to God, hey, thanks for what you did bringing us out of Egypt and the Red Sea and the manna from heaven. We're going to give you the emeritus title, which means you don't do anything anymore. And now we're going to worship these other gods. No, no, that's not it for Hannah. You're no deity emeritus. You're not a mascot. You're the Lord of everything. He says, this very title calls our faith to stretch all its imagination to catch up to such omnipotence. Man, this resilient prayer, it's resilient because she knows where to turn. Here at Radius, we call that praying the truth about God. That's what we call that. We say, pray the truth about him. And that's what Hannah does. She just prays the truth about him. You're the Lord of hosts. Like there's no one greater than you. I know there's these Asherah poles and I know there's Baal and I know they're doing all this crazy stuff with Chemosh and, and, and Marduk. Listen, you are the Lord of hosts. And sometimes we just need to stop. And if we want a resilient prayer, it's God, you are holy. You are above it all. You satisfy. You are gracious. You are merciful. When's the last time we just sat back and rattled them off? Characteristic after characteristic of God and his good. Goodness. And that's resilience, isn't it? Just pray the truth about him. That's what we call it here. He goes on. Not only that, but then she uses this word down there. She goes, if you'll take notice of your servant's affliction, remember. Remember. Now, when we hear the word remember, that probably doesn't mean a lot to us, but I think Hannah's doing more with her prayer here than just saying, remember me. I think she knows these Old Testament stories. Because if you remember, as you read through it, you'll hear things like, God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. God remembered his promises. And check this out. God remembered Sarah. God remembered Rachel. And I think Hannah's saying, I want you to remember me just like that. Which means this. She's praying God's words back to him. She's praying his words back to him. She, she, she's not over here trying to figure it out and stumbling and stammering. She's just like, God, this is what you said. I'm just gonna say it back to you. Will you remember me? Will you remember me? I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you're, you, you need to pray, but your words have left you. You can't write, wrap your thoughts and your mind around it. And 
man, if we knew God's word, we could just, just kind of say it back to him. Have you ever prayed with anybody that prays scripture? It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Just to listen to him, pray it, and like, man, just give his words back to him. I think that's resilient prayer. I don't have to come up with a magical formula. I don't need a bunch of cliches. I don't need to get the order right. I can just pray his words. Third thing I I see here at the end, it says, if you give me this son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. And some people don't like this part. They feel like, well, Hannah's kind of bartering with God. Like, I'm going to do this if you do this. And I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. I think she's saying, I'm going to remember. I want you to remember me. And if, if by mirac- miracle, if something miraculous happens, that, that that means this child's going to be yours anyway. And I'm going to give him to you. And she talks about the Nazarite vow there, like, you know, no, no hair being cut on his head and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, she's, she's saying he's going to be yours. Third thing about resilient prayer Resilient prayer knows where to turn. Resilient prayer uses God's words. The third one is this. Resilient prayer, it doesn't always just ask. It doesn't just ask all the time. I know that's what we like to do, and listen to me. I want you to hear me loud and clear. You should ask things of God. You should. He wants us to. He wants us to ask. He tells us to ask. He wants us to come before him and ask, but... Resilient prayer just doesn't say, give me and give me and more, please, more, and give me and me and give me. It, it also says, I'm going to give. As I wrestled with this this week, I'm like, what do I give in my prayer? What, what have I ever, what, what do I say, like, Lord, I'm, I'm giving you this. I'm giving you control of this. I'm giving you my time. I'm giving you out of degeneracy. I'm giving But most of the time, I end with a long list of all the things I got. I'm asking, asking, asking. Amen. Anybody else with me on that? What would it look like to to know who to turn to, use God's words, and not ask, but also just say, man, I'm going to give. When's the last time we've, we've given? Fourth thing says in verse 10, she was deeply hurt. She wept with many tears. Says she pleaded in verse 11. And she says, it's her servant's affliction. She says, don't forget me. Fourth thing is this, resilient prayer is personal. It's personal. We read earlier that she prayed out of her anguish and resentment. I wonder if sometimes when we pray, we feel like we have to put on some happy face or put on the, the you know, like I'm, everything's fine. And so when I get before God, I, I pull out my long list of cliches or all the hundred things I've heard everybody else pray. And, and now I'm good. And when I say amen, I just kind of, I'm good. I wonder if there's this piece of it where we say, no, 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 this is personal, This is real. This is me crying out to you. Like God can handle it. He's got big, broad shoulders. He wants to hear from us. Again, at Radius, we just call this praying the truth about yourself. It's just praying the truth about us. 
Like we would come to it and say, this is who I am. This is what I got. This is what's on my mind. This is where I hurt. This is what I'm looking for. This is why I'm sad. This is why I'm happy. This is why I'm anxious. This is what I'm worried about. Like we could just pray the truth about us. That's Hannah, man. She's just being raw and real and crying and anxious and pleading for God to do something. It's personal. I just think we are so trained in this world to walk around with a fake smile and everything's okay. And unfortunately, it translates to our prayer life. It's got to be personal. It's got to be personal. Finally, the, the fifth one is this. It's actually not found in this verse. It's the answer to the prayer. I told you already that she's going to be blessed with a child, and his name's going to be Samuel, and he is going to, he's going to talk to the nation of Israel by God's standards. He's going to be a great man. I actually think the answer to the prayer happens before Hannah gets a positive pregnancy test. Like most of the time, you say, oh, he answered a prayer, and he got a son. Let's look back over there at verse 18. After Eli tells her, oh, my bad, you're not drunk. Go in peace. I hope you get what you asked for. Look at what, look at what happens in verse 18. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. Remember earlier? Could she eat? Had, had she been so overwhelmed that she was unable to eat? This had come on her so much that she was unable to have an appetite? Was, was it just a few verses later that she was in anguish and resentment, weeping, and now it says she doesn't look despondent? Something has happened. This is, this is before we get a, hey, you're pregnant. Like, you would expect that after this. This happens before, which tells me something else about resilient prayer. Resilient prayer brings peace. It brings peace. I got to be really careful here because I want to be clear. I do not think prayer is hocus pocus. I don't think it's rubbing a genie's belly. I don't think it's pulling them one arm banded. I don't think it's, it's if I say it all right, then God owes me. I do not think it's that. But I do believe it is very powerful. And I got to do something with this. I got to do something with Philippians 4 when he says, don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I just have a hard time believing that if we come to him and resiliently pray, it may not happen the first time, it may not happen the second time, and I got to do something with the fact that he's going to give peace. He's going to give peace. Here's what's even crazier. Are you ready? This is what blows my mind. If I were to ask you, 
How in the Old Testament does somebody come into the presence of God? You will say, well, there's only one way. One time a year, the priest would go in to the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around him. In case he died in there, they could pull him out. And that's when you would go in the presence to make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people and cleanse the temple. That's how you go in the presence of God. Could we all agree just for a moment that Hannah clearly goes into the presence of God? And not only that, but how much more that we are able to boldly go to the throne of grace because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This idea that we can pray and he can hear us and he wants to hear us. So here, here's what we're going to do. A little different, but this is what we're going to do. Normally I pray here and when I pray the band comes out and we sing a couple of songs and, and sometimes we make a mad dash to communion and I'm just going to ask you just to hang tight for a minute. And this is what I'm going to ask you. I'm just going to ask you that in the stillness of this moment, that we would pray. And these are the two things I'm going to ask you to pray. Would you pray the truth about God and would you pray the truth about yourself? If you want to do that quietly right where you're sitting, that's fine. If you want to do it with the person sitting next to you out loud, fine. I want you to have the freedom to do it. That we, right now, in this moment, would just pray. Pray the truth about God. Pray the truth about ourselves. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, um, and I, uh, this story is heavy, it's weighty, and even as I, I read these words from Hannah and about her, my names come to mind of, of people that I know who have struggled with this very issue. And then, Lord, I know as I... This, look around the room that there's others who are struggling with, with other things. And it's just as weighty and it's just as hard. And, and so, Lord, I don't, I, don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm most amazed by, the fact that you want to hear all of this from us or the fact that here in a minute you're going to listen to all of our prayers at once. But all of it's cool. And for all of it, we just say thank you. Thank you that you want to hear from us. Thank you that, that you're going to listen to us. And thank you that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you, you can give peace. So, Lord, I pray that as just in these few moments as we, we just come before you, we come into your presence, and as you hear the truth about yourself and you hear the truth about us, that Yeah, you just give peace to our hearts. That's what I ask, Lord. Hear our prayers.